You're listening to a podcast produced by the Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies, the Centre for West European Studies, and the EU Centre at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit our website at jsis.washington.edu forward slash cwes euc. We're very honored and delighted to have here Caroline Vicini, the Deputy Head of Mission of the European Union to the United States. And she's assumed this post um, at the delegation of the European Union in Washington, D.C. in September 2015. Her tasks are to oversee the daily management of the delegation, and she steps in when the ambassador um, uh, is absent, so she's a very senior representative. She also chairs the weekly meetings um, of the delegation, um, <clears throat> which is the venue of coordination between the 28 EU member states. Uh, prior to joining the delegation of the EU in the United States, Ms. Vicini served as the Chief of Protocol with the rank of Ambassador at the Ministry for Foreign Affairs in Stockholm, Sweden. And during her five years in this position, she was the focal point on all issues related to the Vienna Convention for Stockholm's 109 foreign missions and in charge of all high-level visits to the Swedish government. Um, the title of her, her talk today is um, Europe and the United States, Old Friends, New Challenges. I guess it must be an exciting position that she's in. I think she has a lot of insights to offer to us. So I would like to uh, join me in welcoming her uh, for uh, today's talk. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for coming in. I'm really delighted to be here, and I know this is the last day before, is it spring break that you're having? No? Close. Close. Almost. Okay. Well, I hope you have fun when you get out of here. <laughs> um, as I said, I'm very here, and thank you, Professor uh, Dr. Wendler, for inviting me to speak today. It's, um, it's a great pleasure. Um, and the last time I was in Seattle was some years ago, maybe five, six years ago, when um, I decided, me and my husband decided to um, see a bit more of the United States, and we rented an RV, and we went around in the um, state of Washington and state of Oregon, uh, and we saw uh, the Olympic Peninsula, we went down the Columbia River, we went up to Bend, uh, we went all around. And it was um, a very nice experience, nice people, interesting. And the best thing was that wherever we went, even out in the countryside, you could always find a good espresso. <laughs> that is not the case when you tour other parts of, of the United States, I can tell you. Uh, because I've done other RV trips uh, just to get to know the country and, and the people. And if you don't know, um, you could think that maybe the Italians are the biggest coffee drinkers, but the biggest coffee drinkers in Europe are actually the Finns, and after them comes the, the Swedes. So I, I, um, I feel right at home here in Seattle. As I mentioned earlier, I am the deputy head of the delegation here of the European Union to the United States, and I've been here for about one year and a half, uh, and I have another two and a half years to go. So I, I'm a um, Swedish uh, diplomat. Most of my career, which has been for, going on for many years now, have been uh, with Swedish Foreign Service. Has anybody here been to Sweden? Oh yeah, wow. Swedish ancestor, anybody? 
No, otherwise you find a lot of them around here, and Norwegian. it's very Norwegian. Yeah, well, that's that's as good. The Norwegians are our brothers, and the Balts are our cousins. You know, so we are feeling very close to that as well. So the. I know that this, uh, the Scandinavian roots go way back um, uh, in this area. By 1910, one-third of Seattle's foreign-born residents were from Sweden, Norway, Denmark, or Finland. And they established a Nordic community in Ballard. And I must say that the landscape here and the weather very much reminds me of home. And um, also, uh, I see many Nordic names around. That Nordstrom, um, for example, it's, it was a Swedish, uh, John W. Nordstrom, who established that, um, that um, uh, retail chain. And um, I went last night, together with Maeve, who's coming here, who was with me, to Evers, uh, down at, at the harbor. And apparently he is also, was also the, the original Ivar from uh, Swedish and Norwegian Paris, parents. So I've spent my whole life, uh, my whole professional life as, as a diplomat. And this was something that started out, my interest for, for the world started out very um, early. I was happy. I had a father who worked in the forestry business, which is also a business where the Scandinavians who came here uh, went into because it's, so, it's a, such a natural thing for us. We have so much forest and a lot of people in the countryside work at least during the winter part of the year uh, in the forests, in logging. But my father worked in the paper and forest business and uh, we had often very foreign guests at home. And um, my parents were very intent on um, making me into a citizen of the world. So when I was 12, they decided it was time for my first trip alone. And they sent me to Canada over the summer uh, with a Canadian family. And that was um, my first American experience, and I was very impressed by everything, you know, American, big cars and milkshakes and things that we did not have in, in Europe at that time. And I also, as many Scandinavians do, I took some, a couple of gap years actually after high school and got the chance to go to France to study French and um, to go to Germany to work as an au pair and um, that was also a life-changing experiences for me. At that time, though, I didn't know that you could become a diplomat. I don't know what I thought about, about that career, but I, I didn't understand that that was an opportunity open to me. So I studied business administration, and I went out, I graduated, and I went to Paris to work for, um, for uh, Volvo Truck, uh, which is also owns man trucks here in, in the United States. Um, worked in financing there. And then one day, somebody sent me an ad for the Foreign Service. Look here, they recruit young diplomats. And when I saw that ad, I knew this is what I had to do. And I was lucky to be um, accepted. And um, my first job uh, was in Algeria, in North Africa. And I was 24 years old and single. And it was also a very um, interesting experience where I got to see how the militant Islamism grow, um, and where first country in the world that actually in general, or in municipal elections, got Islamic parties into their town councils. So that was, that was a very good experience, and that has served me all along, and as you know, even today is, is very central to the foreign policy, even more than ever, I would say.
When I joined the Swedish Foreign Service, Sweden was not even a member of the European Union. Uh, so I've seen how it is to work outside the Union and inside the Union. And it's, um, it's a big difference. And I could, of course, never imagine when I started out that I would end up as a representative for the European Union in the United States. I work for the European External Action Service, which is the European Union's joint foreign service. And uh, that's a foreign service that complements the foreign services in the 28 member states. And the European Union has 140 delegations around the world. And um, diplomats from all the 28 member states work in these uh, delegations. Two-thirds of our staff are employed by, uh, as, um, by the Union, uh, the institutions, like you, <laughs> uh, while uh, one-third of us are coming from the member states. And we are rotating in for a number of years, four years mostly, and then we leave and go back to our own foreign services. Like that, we bring in our experience into the Union and we take back the experience from inside the European Union back to our home ministries. And it's a very good way, I think, of, of getting this unity that we need because, as you might understand, to shape a foreign policy with 28 member states and we work on our foreign policy with, in consensus. That means that one, one government, one nation can stop a decision. So you can imagine how much diplomacy goes into creative foreign policy with 28 mem uh, independent nations. We often talk about the interagency process in, in Washington that's complicated, but I think we are, we are even worse when it comes to that. In, in Washington, we are around 90 people uh, working in the delegation, and we cover a huge number of areas, everything from space, uh, food safety, uh, agriculture, fisheries, um, foreign policy, of course, trade, um, climate issues, energy. Um, yeah, there are few things that we are not covering. And we have also a number of agencies um, that are located, co-located with us. So with the big family, as we call it, we are about 125 people. So we have people from the European Investment Bank, we have people from Europol and other agencies. One part of my job is what I'm doing today, and that is to travel around to reach out to the rest of the country. The US is a huge country to cover, as you can imagine, and um, we easily get focused inside the Beltway. I must say that the last uh, months have been pretty much 24-7 um, as we have seen the new administration enter uh, into, into the White House and everything that has happened since. It's been, um, it's been a, a quite extraordinary experience. And um, what I wanted to do when to come out here is to see how you see it from your side, because we, we are practically a mile from the White House, so we, are, we have it up here. But here you are further away, and you are in the bigger Washington. And it would be interesting to hear afterwards how you see your country develop with, under this new um, administration. Um, the European-US um, uh, partnership is, of course, uh, very, very uh, important. And for us, it's not only a question of building relations with, with uh, the um, 
federal administration, but we also try to reach out to states, to reach out to cities. The big cities are becoming increasingly important players in international for, uh, politics and for many developments in the world. And we also want to meet ordinary people and what is more important than to meet young people. So I actually was in Portland and spoke to high school students. Um, I went to PSU, also in Portland. I met with the mayor. I met with Governor Kate Brown. And yesterday I met with Governor Inslee and uh, uh, the um, policy advisor to Attorney General Bob Ferguson. And today I have met just with Seattle Mayor Ed Murray. And with those people, we try to discuss what we can continue to do in common with, uh, with the cities, with the states, that we might not be able to do with the federal administration um, as it looks now. But the, now I wanted to talk first about the European Union's role in the world today. And the second, a little bit about the future of the EU and why this relation between the EU and the US matters. Um, just before we start on that, I wanted to say uh, what the role the EU has played in recent history. Uh, let us forget, not forget, that when your grandparents were born, the European Union did not exist. We celebrate 60 years today, 60 years. The Union was born in 1957 when Europe was still recovering from the Second World War and the country or the, the continent was mostly in, in ruins. So what you see today when you travel to Europe does not at all look what it was then. Six countries came together and they signed a treaty which is called the Treaty of Rome and they, they agreed then to create a common market and a customs union. And they established the econo European Economic Community, which then um, has been the base for the union that we see today. Of course, we didn't go from six to 28 countries overnight. It's been several waves of enlargement, and it was a very uh, deliberate process. Uh, we built the EU piece by piece, uh, country by country. And what is very important with the EU is, of course, that you often oversee today because it's become so natural, and particularly for you that are young and are, are, um, have always seen Europe at peace. This is a peace project. Um, it was based upon the experience of two world wars, uh, which had completely destroyed the continent and destroyed uh, the lives of so many people. And since the EU has been created, we have not had any wars in, um, in Europe. Um, it's also a question of meeting the world as it develops. We met uh, the end of communism and were able to integrate those countries that lived under the Soviet Union's spell, so to say, to become market economies, to become democracies, and to integrate them in what was called the West and they are now um, members of the EU and are doing remarkably well. The Czech Republic, for example, has a growth that is higher, the highest in the European Union and the lowest uh, rate of unemployment. The former EU Commissioner Olli Rehn once said, the EU's great strength is that, that strength it has been its ability to adapt to the new circumstances. 
Adaptation is the key to the EU's future success too. The EU is a living political animal, it's not a fossil. It must continue to evolve. And that is what we, we are going to do now. Now we are in front of a new challenge. We have one member states that want to leave the EU. We have been very used to countries wanting to join, but now the, the UK population have decided to leave and that is something we need to, um, to deal with. Integration um, is a key word in the EU, and integration is very important to speak about that. That does not mean to raise national identities or cultures, it does, but it does mean to erase divisions, tearing down walls and breaking boundaries, and that is what we have done. And for you who have had the chance to visit Europe or different countries in Europe, I think you can agree to me with me that the, the individual countries in Europe are very, very different. And you get a very different feel depending on where, where you end up. It's not only the language, but it's what the people eat, what they do, how they behave, uh, what the architecture looks like, uh, the history and everything. So we have been a divided continent, but we have transformed ourselves into the largest and wealthiest single market in the world and we have become a beacon for stability, prosperity, and peace. And with the peace, our, uh, one of the proudest moments was, of course, when the EU received the uh, Nobel Peace Prize in 2012. European Commission President, he says, uh, said at one point, we are not proud enough in Europe of what we have achieved. This was a continent of divisions, of wars, of conflicts, of divergences, of differences. When I'm in Asia, in Africa, people admire what we have managed to do. Europe is beautiful seen from other continents. And as you often know, it's easy to be self-conscious and critic uh, to what we have and say, oh, it does not function as we hoped it would, etc. We have very high expectations. But what you, when you see it from abroad, it's actually quite fantastic, and there is nothing like it. I don't know if you can, if you are students of, of uh, political uh, studies or international policy, if you, there is nothing in the world that, that looks like, that is similar to the EU. It's a, it's a unique political experiment. And for example, the African Union has very much looked to us to try to conceive something that is, looks like the European Union. So the EU has its own foreign service and that means also that we, and we have a joint foreign policy and that means also that we are a global actor. And one thing that you might not know is that the EU, we are the largest donor of humanitarian and development assistance in the world. We are actually larger than the United States. And we are working on many, many different thematics. Today, what day is it? Women's Day, of course. Congratulations to all the women who are here. I, they sit on this side for some reason. How is it come that men sit there and the women there? Well, there are a few women here on this side as well. <laughs> it's not like in church. <laughs> hundred years ago. Uh, anyhow, uh, we, we work a lot on women's issues, gender policies, very important. We work to eradicate female genital mutilation in Africa, in the Middle East, and even in, in the EU where some migrant groups, immigrant groups still um, try to, to do that. We um, work to eradicate all 
forms of violence against women and girls, and we work very hard on the education of women and girls, very important for the future of the world. We are um, big humanitarian donors, and as you know, at the threshold of Europe, we have one of the biggest humanitarian disasters uh, in the world, the, the Syria war, which has sent so many people um, away from the country. Uh, I think all of you have seen on TV what, what Mosul, and which is in Iraq, but uh, Aleppo and other cities look like. And um, there, um, many people have left the country to reside in, in Lebanon, to reside in Jordan, to reside in Turkey. And we have uh, provided uh, up to now 5 billion euros, no, dollars actually, uh, in aid for medical relief, protection, food, water, shelter, and education. Particularly on education, we have dedicated 92 million euros since 2012 for education of children in emergency situations. Uh, and uh, that help has actually reached 3.8 million children in 47 countries, because there are many other big refugee disasters, as you know, in the world that we talk much less about, those in Africa, for example. We are also active in defence, and many don't know that. Of course, for the territorial defence in Europe, we have NATO, uh, of which the EU is, uh, or of which the US is, is a very, very important member. But we also, the EU has a military dimension, and we send military missions uh, abroad. We have a big military mission in, a naval mission in um, uh, the Mediterranean right now, Operation Sophia that mainly works against smuggling of, of refugees. We have a big operation outside Somalia against piracy, Operation Atalanta. And we have several uh, military operations in, uh, in Africa where we try to train uh, the uh, different countries' troops to themselves be able to uh, keep order, fight terrorism, uh, guard their borders, etc. But for us, we find that building security is really through the development of people and development of countries. And that is the best way. We approach development in the, our own European way, and we support countries in their efforts to eradicate poverty and create a better future for their people. And we want the, the single individual countries to have control over their own development. So EU very much uses the soft power, and we believe that only by development you can create more security, less, less uh, migration, and uh, better conditions for everyone. Another very important topic today is human rights, of course. And that is uh, the very heart of the EU relations with other countries, including with the United States that has been our best partner so far when it comes to spreading uh, human rights uh, in the world and to promote it and to survey uh, and um, um, intervene when human rights are not respected. So we work on um, human rights, democracy, and the rule of law. We work to promote the rights of women, children, minorities, and displaced persons. We oppose death penalty. That is one very important thing we do here in the United States. We work actively 
and we are very outspoken against the use of death penalty in the United States and in other countries, of course. Um, and uh, we work against um, torture, human trafficking, discrimination, and other civil, political, economic, social, and cultural rights. That is said, there are times when it requires us to sp speak out uh, very uh, clearly about those issues. And in the words of EU's foreign policy chief, uh, uh, Federica Mogherini, we addressed the European Parliament after uh, President Trump's executive order. And she said, no one, no one can be deprived of his or her own rights because of their place of birth, their, re their religion, and their ethnicity. Our European history has told us to celebrate when a wall is torn down and a bridge is built. We have learned from our own great, but also very tragic history, that every human being is first and foremost a person with fundamental rights that cannot be put into question. This is the European way. We need to build common ground, not to ban. And we know from our own experiences that these measures have the opposite effect. They create tensions and mistrust among people and nations. And the EU, all by we are in a very difficult situation, and you have all followed what has happened, we will continue to offer protection to refugees. Most of them who are actually victims of terrorist groups, and they are fleeing from them. The EU is the biggest donor in the world for the Syrian people and the neighboring countries. And we have invested more than 9 billion since the start of the fighting in Syria. We have and we hope to continue to work closely with the United States to protect the human rights of all refugees, migrants, and people. And human rights are not only central to our values, but also to our relations with the rest of the world. All our agreements on trade or on cooperation includes a human rights clause and we post sanctions for human rights violations. The world knows that if they want to be our partners, they need to respect human rights, and of course also the rights of LTBG people. We are, while we are proud of the progress we have made in advancing the LGBTI equality, we know there is still a lot more to be done in Europe itself and around the world. And there's one thing to enact policies and actions, but another one is to influence people and opinions and perceptions. And we are doing the both. Last year, the EU launched the hashtag Share Your Dream, which is a social media campaign with the goal of improving the social acceptance of LGBTI people, combating negative stereotypes and raising awareness uh, around the world. And we know that it's important to start young we have done a considerable job in schools around the EU to stop uh, homophobic and transphobic bullying. And we are committed to defend and promoting the values of equality, tolerance and respect for each other, values on which the European Union is founded. Now a few words on the future. The EU is here to stay. I don't know if you have heard something different, but my message to you is that the EU is here to stay. People have been actually counting out the EU for decades. There has always been a bit of opposition, but we have moved forward. 
Support for the EU has gone up in every member state since the Brexit vote. And the EU has faced many challenges before and we will continue to face challenges. It wouldn't be, be, it would be strange if it was differently because most governments and countries face challenges continuously. The issues that confront Europe today are transnational, as we see it with migration, with security, with the economy. And we believe that we can come up with better and more efficient solutions to the problems when we are, uh, work together to address them. Overcoming challenges together as the European Union will always make us stronger. And we believe that a strong European Union is very good for the United States and the rest of the world. Despite our challenges, recent figures show that the Eurozone's economy have now posted 14 consecutive quarters of growth. And the economic sentiment has reached its highest level in six years. And the creation, job creation for the Eurozone is accelerating to a nine-year record in January. We are still, notwithstanding the, the, the Eurozone and the Euro crisis, uh, the wealthiest and largest market in the world. And the European single market is one of our crowning achievements. The EU makes up 30% of world trade. And together with the United States, we comprise 50% of the world's GDP. So together, US and, U and the EU, we are half of the world's economy. And that, of course, gives us a special responsibility. But not only are we, the EU, US, uh, most important trade partner, we are also your most important uh, foreign investor. 80% of all foreign direct investments in the United States come from the EU. As you see, the US needs the EU as much as we need you. Some 15 million jobs on both sides of the Atlantic depend on the trade between us. In 2016, Washington State exported to the EU totaled over $11 billion, and 70% of that was transportation equipment. And what hides under that? That's, I suppose, airplanes from Boeing. Washington State had more than $4 billion of imports from EU, ranging from machinery to European textiles, paper, and fish. Not as only does the EU, US benefit from European investment and trade, it also benefits from our technology and innovation. Innovation might not be the first things that comes to your mind when you think about Europe. But we are today a hotbed of innovation, and that shows. And the magazine Wired recently reported that the top US tech companies, like those that you have here, Amazon, Microsoft, but Intel also, Apple, Facebook, and Google, have been buying up European tech companies at the rate of about one per month during the past three years. What the difference with these acquisitions is that mostly it means also investment in Europe to continue to take advantage of um, the, the presence in Europe and the development uh, we have there. We have constructed inside Europe something called the digital single market. And that is because, as strange as it might seem, we are 28 different uh, countries. and there was no digital mar single market. So there were a lot of obstacles for e-trade, for example. 
there were high rooming fees if you went from one EU country to another. Uh, you could not, for example, if you had bought a, uh, an e-service like Netflix or streaming of music or something, you could, due to something called geo-blocking, not use it in other uh, EU countries. And that the European Union has taken on, and we are now seizing the benefits of the digital technologies because we have a single, uh, or we are building a single digital market. So some of our goals with that market is to make data sharing easier, internet faster, banning uh, unsolicited spam, emails and text, and creating a stronger online privacy rules. But we want to bring also the opportunity of technology to all Europeans regardless of where they live. And by the year 2020, free Wi-Fi will be available in all towns and villages in the EU. This year, we are also going down to Austin to par participate in South by Southwest, and where we will talk more about uh, the digital market and introduce some of the new tech startups. So if you're going down there, join uh, the EU, we have our own space and both the EU and our member states will be present there and have a big program. Another part of the EU that I want to talk about here and I've talked about with all with the mayors and with the governors that I've met is the climate, climate and environment. The most important topic of today for you, your future, I mean, we here in the front row, we are soon gone, but for you and for your children, uh, the climate is the most important thing. And we are in the forefront of um, the climate fight, and we have put our money uh, where our mouth is. We set aside 20% of EU's budget, as much as 180 billion euros on protecting the climate. 20% of our budget goes to climate uh, related issues. While we set high goals for ourselves, we are also helping um, developing countries. We are the largest contributor of climate finance to developing countries. As you know, in the Paris Agreement, there is a facility for helping um, uh, third world countries to develop uh, climate smart solutions and to adapt to the change of climate, of the climate that will affect them much more than us, actually. So the EU's goals are, by 2020, we will have cut our em gas emissions, uh, greenhouse gas emissions, by 20%. We will ensure that 20% of all energy comes from renewable sources. And we would have 20% energy efficiency across the board. But we have already exceeded the first goal, actually. Already now, in 2017, we have cut our greenhouse gas emissions by 22%. And we want to continue that road. I'm impressed here. I know you are working hard on this at this, at this campus, at this university. Uh, and I know that you get your uh, electrical energy from renewable sources. We, I hope the rest of the United States has a lot to learn from you. And I hope you will continue and the university will continue to work on spreading this good model to other universities and other entities. In closing, ironically no, enough, we started as a steel and coal community, but that was 60 years ago. Now we have undergone an enormous transformation. When my parents were young, they could not travel freely, they could not live where they wanted, and I today can 
live wherever I want in the EU. I have an Italian husband, I have kids that are Swedish Italians, and they have the future of living in at least 27 countries. But I believe we will move upward on the numbers again because once the, the Brits have exited, we have other countries lining up to join us. And the EU will continue to transform, as will our EU and US uh, relationship. But one thing remains constant. We are essential partners, the EU and the US, and our friendship is deeper than any change in politics or administration. This year, we also celebrate 30 years anniversary of Erasmus+, Plus, which is an exchange that allows US students and professors to conduct studies or research in the EU. So I, I invite you to explore that. And we are working now on a new uh, model EU simulation for university students. And we hope that we will be able to invite, we start with a small number of universities close to DC, but we hope soon enough to be able to invite you here as an EU center of excellence. So our shared history and values unite us, the US and the EU in enduring ways. But we are also friends of your big neighbors. We just closed a big, uh, very innovative trade agreement with Canada. We are negotiating with Mexico. We believe they are also very good partners for us when it comes to the climate change work. And we have other partners in, in Latin America and African Union and in the Arab world. In the recent words of Federica Mogherini in closing, the EU will be a more indispensable power than before, and we will remain a stable, reliable, and predictable partner that the world can count on. Thank you very much.